0: Morning, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. I'll meet you there in just a little bit. You know, it's often been the case down through the years that we fail to recognize our heroes until after they're gone. They live and they die without any recognition or without any special honor and it's not until sometime after they're gone that that suddenly we remember their good deeds and the contribution they made but there are some exceptions and we're going to talk today about a man who was an exception to that rule a man who was translated and the bible tells us that he had a testimony he had a testimony that he pleased God, and today, after all of those years, we're still talking about this same man, the same man that during the course of his life had a testimony that he pleased God. Naturally, the first question that comes to my mind is, what is, what is my testimony And you need to think about that this morning and ask yourself, what is your testimony? Now, it's obvious to to other people uh, what you stand for, what you believe, what they see in you. But it ought to be obvious to them that your purpose in life is to please God. I'm afraid that we don't understand the importance of our testimony. Testimony. When we stop and think about it, our credibility is determined by our testimony. Our confession is confirmed by our testimony. Our counsel to others is judged by our testimony. Our character is revealed by our testimony. Our companions are aware of our testimony. Our children are affected by our testimony. Our church is either helped or hindered by our testimony. Our critics will use our testimony against us. Our conscience depends upon our testimony, and Christ is concerned about it. Many times over the years I've made this statement that the best advertisement for Christianity is a spirit-filled Christian. And the worst enemy of Christianity is a carnal Christian. It matters how we live. It matters what other people see in us. Here in Hebrews chapter number 11 And I'm certain that you are familiar with this chapter as it speaks about God's Hall of Fame, if you please. The roll call of the heroes of the faith down through the years. And I want you to notice in verse number 5, it says, By faith, that's the only way that we can live to please God, right? Without faith it's impossible to please God, the Bible says. So by faith. Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found. That is, he suddenly disappeared. He was not found because God had translated him for before his translation, not after he was gone, but before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. The thing that that so impressed others about him is found in Genesis 5, 24, where it says, He was not, for he walked with God. One of the most difficult things about preaching is not finding something to say. It's trying to know what to leave unsaid. And that's where I find myself this morning. There is so much that I would like to say about any. But to make my point, I have to narrow everything down and cram it into this small period of time that we've got here this morning. But he is one of the few men in all of the Bible about whom there is nothing bad recorded. Now, that doesn't mean that he was perfect but it means he was head and shoulders above the average person, and God chose not to record anything bad about this man. His name means dedicated or disciplined, and it's obvious that here's a man that lived up to his name. Unlike us Christians who sometimes fail to live up to the name, here's a man that lived up to his name, and it was... Noted by other people that he walked with God. Now, keep in mind, he walked with God during those evil days before the flood. I'm talking about an awful time upon this earth where every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. In other words, it's as bad as it can get. So bad to the point that God said, I'm going to, I'm going to wipe it clean. And judgment failed. And in a time like that, here is a man that walked with God, a corrupt world that had been fashioned by the sons of Cain. According to Genesis chapter number 5, he began walking with God at the age of 65. Now something significant happened then, and that is the birth of a child. And over the years, I've known a lot of people that made drastic changes in their life as a result of having a child born to them and realizing that now I have a responsibility to raise that child. I don't know what all went through in its mind, but I know at the age of 65 that his son was born, Methuselah. Now all of this is significant because Methuselah means when he is dead it shall be sent. That's speaking about the flood, folks. He lived 969 years upon this earth showing that God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So this man that lived longer than any other man on the face of the earth was the man who lived just before the flood, and his name meant when he's dead, it shall be sent. You see, Enoch knew that judgment was coming upon the earth. We don't have all of the details recorded about a conversation between God and Enoch, but we do know that he knew. And we know that from the little book of Jude that tells us that he prophesied that the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints. And he had a ministry of warning others. He lived a total of 365 years, and the Bible says 300 years, that is the 300 years after the birth of Methuselah, here is a man that walked with God. That tells me, number one, that he was acquainted with God. You can't walk with God unless you're acquainted with God. It tells me that he was aware of God's plan. You can't walk with God if you don't know what God's plan is. Not only that, it tells me he was agreeable with God's will. Whatever God wanted, that's what He wanted. That's the way that we ought to be. And it tells us that he was active in service. That's what it means to walk with God. I mean, we can't walk with God unless we also are acquainted with Him, aware of His plan, and His will is acceptable to, to, to our manner of life, and we get active in His service. And he had this tremendous testimony that he pleased God. And, and, and don't, forget, don't forget that it's during those troublesome times He pleased God. I've had people tell me, well, preacher, I I think I'm going to have to quit my job. I just, I can't take it anymore. All of those heathen down there, you don't understand how they cuss and they cheat and they lie and they do all of these things. Did you ever stop to think that maybe God put you there to be a bright light in the night of their sin? God has you there for a reason. Don't you let them run you off just because it's difficult. We are in this rotten, sinful world to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And we're not to seclude ourselves somewhere, you know, and live our life in isolation. In order to reach the world, we've got to rub shoulders with the world without ever becoming like the world. We have to maintain our testimony even in these troublesome times, the sad thing is, a lot of people have a terrible testimony. You know, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Their conduct is contrary to their confession. They say one thing and live another. I've had people tell me in reference to, to, uh, to church members, well, I didn't know they were a Christian. You know, isn't that awful thing? You think I've been working with this person for years and had no idea that he was a Christian. You mean he's a member of your church? What a horrible thing it is to have a testimony like that. We hear people all the time talking about, you know, I just want to please God. And what they really mean is I want to please God as long as it pleases me. In other words, we want to put conditions upon our commitment. Well, we want to go only so far with God. You know, we don't mind attending church. We don't even mind giving the tithe. We don't mind doing a, a few things, but you know, we, don't, we don't want to do anything. And yet the Lord said, unless a man forsakes all he has, he cannot be my Disciple. 1 Timothy four twelve tells us that we are to be examples of the believer. Think about that. We, each and every one of us, ought to be an example of what it means to be a Christian. That means that our top priority should be to please God. We need to discover His will for our life and do it. So let's talk about our testimony. Let's talk about the importance of pleasing God. First of all, when I think about pleasing God, the first thing that comes to my mind is what a privilege that is. I mean, you ever think about what a wonder, wonderful privilege it is, you know, for a sinful man to be able to do something to please a holy God? I'm sure there's some women married to, to men that, you know, and, and, and they believe with all of their heart, I, I can't do anything to please him. They have had to live with a guy like that for a few years until I got saved. We was talking the other day, and, and uh, you know, I, I was raised with my mother just catering to dad's every desire. He wasn't a mean man. He wasn't a, an abuser, you know, uh, uh, a wife-beater, anything like that. But, boy, everything had to be his way. And she knew it, and she lived for that very purpose. And so we got married, and... Uh, Bev fried some eggs, and uh, she was telling me this week, we was talking about. she said I had to do the eggs over three different times because it wasn't just perfect, you know. They had to, you know, be sunny-side up with their eyes open and nothing runny. <laughs> you try to cook an egg like that sometimes. <laughs> and so there's some people you just can't please regardless of what you do. It's never good enough. Now when you think about God who is, who is great in power, a God who is full of wisdom, the God who is self-sufficient, the great I am, He needs nothing, He needs nobody, He's sufficient in and of Himself. And to think about you and I as sinful and vile and unworthy and weak as we are, that, that we could do something to to please Him, to bring God pleasure. That's just amazing to me. You know, to get God's attention is one thing. I mean, I can sin and get God's attention. It's one thing to get God's attention. It's another thing to actually bring God pleasure. And I don't know about you, but it just thrills my heart to think about the possibility of me... Thrilling God. You can do that. We're going to see that later on. You can thrill the heart of God, and that ought to be the thing that you are living for in order to please Him. That's a privilege. But there's a problem also, and the problem is that most of us are more concerned about being pleased than we are about pleasing God. And here's the really sad thing about this. A lot of preachers know that. They know about human nature. They, they know what people want. And, and so in knowing that, they play off of that in order to, in order to make themselves famous. And their preaching is upside down. By that, I mean they put all of the emphasis on God pleasing people rather than the responsibility of people pleasing God. You know I'm telling you the truth. That's what this prosperity gospel, so-called, is all about. That God exists as some big hunk of love up there that is like Santa Claus you know, that just gives you all of these good things. And with never any thought of you and I living for the purpose of of pleasing Him, and we need to understand that pleasing God is more important than being pleased by God. We all like to rejoice in our blessings, but very few people really take pleasure in being a blessing. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul is describing the way it will be in the last days. And he says that men shall be lovers of their own selves. In verse 4, he said they're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. But that's what I'm talking about by upside down. We love ourselves more than we love God You know, we sing the little chorus, It's all about you, Jesus. That's great. That's the way it ought to be. But these folks I'm talking about, it would be just fine with them if we sang, It's all about me, Jesus. It's all about me. Because that's what they've made it. They've made it all about them. They're more concerned about pleasing themselves than they are about pleasing God. Consequently, nobody is pleased. God's not pleased, and they're not pleased, because no Christian can live a life of satisfaction unless they are devoted to the purpose of pleasing God. Now, that's a strong statement. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I don't think I agree with you, preacher. Well, let me ask you this question. Why are you here? Why do you exist on this earth? What's your purpose in life? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly in the book of Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 11 He created us for His glory, to bring Him pleasure. That, that, that's why we exist. That's your purpose in life. And you never find peace, satisfaction, joy. You never find any of those things that everybody is desperately looking for unless you are fulfilling your purpose in life. It makes no difference what else you do. It'll never be enough that you'll be satisfied. So the problem is, is we're more concerned about being pleased than we are about pleasing God. Now, that brings up the question, then how can we please God? I I, I said earlier, the really tough part of this message is trying to figure out what to leave unsaid because there's so much that needs to be said about this. And we have to reduce it down to a few simple thoughts. And when we talk about the path to pleasing God, I've just got time to mention five things very quickly that I want you to think about this morning. This is the path to pleasing God. Number one, there has to be reverence for His person. That's what it says in Psalms 147, verse 1, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear Him. The Lord takes pleasure. In other words, we please Him by what? Fearing Him. Fearing God is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God is the way to life. Fear. Listen, it all boils down to the fear of God. That is the most basic fundamental thing in all of the world. And as you and I both know, there's a lot of people that don't have any fear of God. And a lot of people, you know, that in their mind, oh, if I wasn't afraid of what God was going to do, I'd do this, and I'd do that, and I'd do that. They'd do anything. We need the fear of God to keep us in check. It's foundational to everything. And sadly, some people have no fear of God whatsoever. That's why they can't please God. The path to pleasing God starts with having a reverence for God, but then... But then also, and this is right along with it, to please God, you must receive His pardon. Some of those wonderful verses in all of the Bible is found in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, where it talks about God and the plan of salvation that He designed before the foundation of the world. He speaks about the Father's part and the Son's part and the Spirit's part. And in each and every instance, as you look at that section, you'll find each and every time, in reference to the Holy Trinity pertaining to our salvation, He tells us it was unto the praise of His glory. That's the purpose behind it. God, God doesn't save us just because, you know, He feels sorry for us some people don't understand this because they think, boy, God must have a big ego. Well, when you're God, you can. I know we don't understand this. We can't wrap our mind around it. For God to say, I created you for my glory, for my pleasure. That's why you exist. And I saved your dirty, rotten soul under the praise of my glory. Because God deserves everything God demands. And for us to refuse to receive the pardon that He made possible is the ultimate insult to God. His own Son shed His blood on the cross. And for us to trample underfoot the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can never please God until, first of all, above everything else, that we have received His pardon. If you're here today and you've never been saved, you need to understand you can't do anything to please God. The Bible says even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Whatever you do is sin in the sight of God. It's not just when you get drunk and curse and steal and and sleep around and all of that stuff. Everything you do is sin until you repent of your sin. Then number three, we need to rejoice and praise. Psalms 149 tells us that very clearly. By the way, that ought to be the natural response to God's grace. How How can we not rejoice in praising God when we've been saved by the grace of God? You can't please God unless you're praising God. He inhabits the praises of His people. Where'd Crystal go? Crystal Mills, there she is. I remember hearing her grandpa preach one time. I don't know why I thought of this. It's been so many years ago, but Brother Nick got up and he preached. In fact, I've heard him quote that verse over and over and over again to the people there. Uh, at the Austin Avenue Baptist Church. It God inhabits the praise of His people. You, listen, if we want God in our midst, we better praise God. Somebody says, well, you know, I went to church today. I didn't get anything out of it. I, I didn't sense the presence of God. Look, that's not an indictment against the church. That's an indictment against you. You pra- listen, if you're praising God, you can sense the presence of God because praise pleases God. But there's more. We also have to respect His precepts. Over in 1 Chronicles 29, 17, it says, I know also my God, that thou triest the heart. You see, He's looking beyond the outward appearance. Thou triest the heart, now listen, and hast pleasure... In uprightness, God takes pleasure in in His children doing what is right. You know, think about it. I could bowl a perfect game. I never have. I, I got close a time or two, but I never bowled a perfect game in my life. I could bowl a perfect game. I could make a hole in one. Never got too close to that, but... Uh, I could catch a 10-pound bass. I, well, I've done that several times, but I catch a 10-pound bass. You know, you, you just make, make your list. You can do all of those things, and and God's not impressed by any of those things. That doesn't impress God one little bit. You know, we do all of these things, and we win these trophies and put them all up on a shelf. I, I remember years and years ago, in fact, when we moved to Fort Thomas, Kentucky, and and I remember we moved there and had these boxes of trophies, softball and baseball and bowling. And I thought, what am I going to do with these? And, and we, I, I finally took them off the shelves, boxed them up, and I don't know what happened to them. They're, they're all gone. They didn't mean anything. Let me tell you, they don't mean anything to God either. But the most simple act of obedience to His will brings Him pleasure. God takes pleasure in us obeying His holy precepts. And then there's another thing you can add to that list, and that is recognizing His presence. Zephaniah, the little book of Zephaniah that most people are not even familiar with, chapter 3, verse 7, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. Now now please, if if you haven't been listening, please listen to this verse. The Lord God who is in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. That's good. Now notice, He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. And get this, He will joy over thee with singing. Did you know God sings? Jesus sang in the church, the Bible tells us. But we're talking about God the Father and God singing. And He's telling us here that when we do that which pleases God, that we bring Him such pleasure that He just breaks out in a song. I just i put on Facebook yesterday, I said, I'm preparing the message. I'm about to bust the gut. I'm so excited about the message today. This is about where I was. And I was just thinking about, wait a minute. Among all of the seven billion people here on this earth, I mean, this one little planet among all of the millions of planets out there in all of the universe and the great and the mighty God who created and controls all of this, that I could do something that all of a sudden would make God stop in His tracks and start singing something. Because what I did brought Him pleasure and He's singing And I can't help but wonder what he's singing. I can't imagine that. But just to know that we could bring God that much pleasure, that we could make God sing. I mean, it ought to thrill our heart to think that we can thrill God's heart. And by living in the constant consciousness of His presence, in close communion, in full fellowship with God. That affects absolutely everything we do. That affects the way you behave at school. That affects the way you do your job. That affects your marriage. It affects everything about your life. Because every detail of your life suddenly becomes significant. Even the most mundane things of life become meaningful because your primary purpose, your ultimate goal is what? To please God. But what is the proof? What what is the proof that we are living our life? This is where our testimony comes in. What is the the proof? What is the evidence that we are pleasing God? You you know, since this is so important, we ought to be looking for some evidence, right? I mean, we need each and every one examine our hearts. You know, is my life pleasing to God? Put yourself to the test this morning and, and ask yourself some questions and answer those questions. What, you, what are you living for? That's a good place to start, right? What are you living for? Is it for pleasure? Is that your primary interest in life? Or is it possessions? You know some some people don't care about doing all of these pleasurable things and all of the attractions of the earth they, they just want stuff they'll do anything to get it. Other people don't care anything about stuff they want power they want prestige they want popularity they want to be admired by man what is what are you living for? Well, you say, how do I answer that? Well, let me help you. what consumes your interests. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? How do you expend your energy? You see, that tells you what you're living for. And then we need to ask ourselves, how far are we willing to go? I said earlier, a lot of times we talk about, well, I just want to live to please God. And what we really mean is, I just want to live to please God as long as what God wants is pleasing to me. I've often said, you know, when God called me to preach, I could have stayed right back there in the Ozarks. I could have, you know, I've been living there. Bev and I lived right down for a little while on Bull Shoals Lake, right down there below Parasite Dam. That's downstream from the Branson area there. It doesn't get any more beautiful than that. I could preach there, I could pastor a church there, but it wouldn't be where God wants me to be. You see, in order to please God, I've not not only got to do what God wants me to do, I got to do what God wants me to do where He wants me to do it. It's the same thing's true of all of us, folks. It's not just pleasing God in one little area of your life, it's pleasing God in every area of your life. So we have to ask, ask the question, how far are we willing to go? Well, the answer ought to be all the way. Like the song, Whatever It Takes. Boy, I heard that song for the first time and nearly scared me to death. Whatever it takes. I'll trade sunshine for rain and sorrow for pain. Think about that. Whatever it takes, Lord, for your will to be done in my life. Every one of us needs to have that attitude when we leave here. Whatever it takes. Regardless of how painful it is, regardless of how inconvenient it is, whatever it takes, because God is never pleased when we do less than our best. He's never pleased with half-heartedness. You see, our example is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did He say? He said, I do always those things that please Him, that is the Father. I do always those things that please Him. That's our example. Now, that brings me down to one more thing, and that's the product of walking with God, the product of pleasing God. What's the, what's the bottom line? What's the, what's the end result of all of this? And I wish I had an eye and the tongue of an angel to be able to explain to you, and, and I don't have either one. In fact, I, I simply do not have the words to describe how important your testimony really is. In some ways, it is the most valuable thing that you possess. But I'm going to try to sum it all up with just a couple examples. Gandhi said, I would have become a Christian had it not been for Christians. Now, can can you imagine the influence that man had over people around the world? the teeming millions and millions of people who followed that man. And he said, I would have become a Christian had it not been for Christians. Now, I don't know if that's true. or I know it's true that he said that, but I don't know, you know, if he really meant that or if he really would. I don't know, but I know that's the way he felt. And I can't help but wonder how many other people feel that way. Because we all have heard people say, Well, I'm not going to church anymore. There's too many hypocrites in the church. And what they're really saying is, I might become a Christian were it not for Christians. And you see, they're going to judge Christ based on what they see in you as a Christian. My favorite story in this regards... It's a story I jotted down in the flyleaf of my Bible many, many years ago. It's the story of uh, David Livingston and the conversion of the English explorer, Sir Henry Stanley. These are the words of uh, Sir Henry Stanley. This is what he wrote. I went to Africa as prejudiced against religion as the worst infidel in London to a reporter like myself who had only to deal with wars, mass meetings and political gatherings, sentimental matters were quite out of my province. But but there came to me a long time for reflection. I was out there away from a worldly world. I saw this solitary old man, David Livingston. I saw this solitary old man there. And I asked myself, why does he stop here in such a place? And what is it that inspires him? For months after we met, I found myself listening to him, wondering at the old man carrying out the words, Leave all and follow me. But little by little, seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how he went quietly about his business, I was converted by him, although he had not tried in any way to do it. Now, that's the ultimate lifestyle evangelism there. Think about that. Just watching David Livingston ultimately led him to accept the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, listen, you've heard it said before, you're the only Bible some people will ever read. Folks, your life is a sermon. Your testimony matters. The most embarrassing failure that I can remember of my Christian life happened Between two and three years after I'd been saved and surrendered to preach, we had a church softball team. And another young man, a young preacher, he had surrendered to preach a couple of years after I did by the name of David Smith. David surrendered to preach, and he was on the softball team. And I ordinarily wasn't a pitcher, but I was going to pitch in this game because I could throw so hard, but I didn't usually end up knowing where the ball was going. But I I could knock the catcher down, but I I was wilder than a March Hare. And so the pastor of the church, he was the manager, and he was over on the bench. And, you know, he couldn't break a plate glass window, but he could at least throw it over the plate. Well, I got out there and... uh, and started walking people, and finally he come out and he said, I, look, I, I, I'm going to take you out and I'm going to come in. And I got mad and kicked the dirt and throwed my glove over on the bench and went out to third base or somewhere else and just, you know, displayed my anger. Well, the game went on and it ended. We walking out across the parking lot to get in the car, and I heard a voice. And David came up there, and he was crying. He said, can I talk to you a minute? And I said, sure, I'd forgotten all about this anger thing. That was just part of all. And he said, I want you to know that you hurt me more than, than you'll ever know this evening. He said, you've been my hero. I have admired you. You've been my example. I've wanted to be like you. And when you got mad and lost your temper out there, he said, I I couldn't believe that was you. Boy, you could have hit me between the eyes with a two before and it wouldn't have hurt as bad as that hurt. David didn't stop loving me, but he wanted me to know you really hurt me deeply and disappointed me. You see, sometimes we're like a monkey with a match, folks. We can burn down what it took years to build up. And whenever we ruin our testimony, we lose our effectiveness in the service of the Lord. It bothered me that I had disappointed David. But it hurt me even more to know that that God wasn't pleased. Are you walking with God? Can you honestly say my main, primary, fundamental, most important purpose in life is I want to please God and I don't care what I've got to do to do it. I'll go all the way. Let's stand together. Father, Forgive us of the times that we drag our feet, the times that we slow down, the times that we make take wrong turns and go in the wrong direction, the times that we just balk at doing your will because we're fearful or selfish or whatever it is, but those times where our primary interest becomes pleasing self more than pleasing you. Forgive us. Lord, we can't live this life without Your help. And so we come to You this morning just praying for Your mercy and Your grace, strength that You alone can give, that we might be able to so walk with You that we'll have a testimony of all of those around us, that they believe with all of their heart that more than anything else, We want to please You. Help us to understand that's what it means to live a life well lived. And Father, if there are those here that have never responded to Your saving grace, never trusted Christ as their Savior, may the Holy Spirit so convict them and draw them and bring them to the fountain of living water. For we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.